1: One place you might not expect to find mishandling of sexual harassment complaints is at the Justice Department, which is responsible for the enforcement of law in the country. But the Inspector General says the DOJ has systemic problems in how it handles such complaints and that employees found to have acted improperly often do not receive the appropriate punishment. According to the Washington Post, Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz sends his findings about the prevalence and mishandling of sexual harassment at the DOJ to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein on May 31st. The cases examined by the IG included a U.S. attorney, a chief deputy U.S. marshal, and FBI special agents in charge, among others. Joining me is Deborah Katz, founding partner at Katz, Marshall & Banks. Excuse me, Deborah, some of these cases involve senior Justice Department officials across the country, not just senior attorneys, but even a U.S. attorney. What's your initial reaction to hearing this?
2: Well, my initial reaction is one of horror, of course, but not surprise. Sexual harassment is endemic in every sector of our workforce, and we know it it takes place in the judiciary. We know it takes place in Congress, and certainly uh, it's no surprise that it takes place at the Department of Justice. What is really galling to me in reading the Washington Post report is how long uh, uh Rod Rosenstein, uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, has been sitting on this issue. He received the report from Inspector General Michael Horowitz in May uh, detailing extremely egregious cases of sexual harassment, and more than that, that the people who per- perpetrated the harassment went on to win bonuses and awards with no kind of disciplinary action. That's just absolutely shocking. And now... Uh, we now know that uh, Rosenstein is saying he's going to convene a task force to look at this. There's nothing to look at here. We know the laws. They're well established. It's time to take appropriate, decisive action. If we really want zero intolerance of sexual harassment, it's time for heads to roll.
1: The cases involved charges of groping, stalking, peeping, sexual comments, among other things. And at times, a perpetrator was transferred to another division without anything being said. Is that similar to what happens in in corporations and companies across the country? You get transferred, and no one knows what happened.
2: Yes, and this is exactly why sexual harassment is allowed to uh, continue as it has, uh, where uh, the individuals who are victimized suffer se- severe career ramifications. I mean, their 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 careers are really tainted. But the people who are per- perpetrating the harassment just get moved on elsewhere, like we saw in the priest abuse cases and elsewhere. Um, and that Department of Justice has not seen fit, even with this inspector general report, to crack down hard and decisively on these individuals who are found to have engaged in this kind of unlawful behavior it is shocking. We're talking eight months that DOJ has had this inspector general report. And in, in uh, August, uh, Rosenstein had received a letter from women at the Department of Justice, who also detailed that they themselves have been subjected to sexual harassment and that the problems, in fact, are systemic. And again, no action has been taken other than saying we're going to convene a workforce to look at this. That's outrageous.
1: He, so he said he's going to convene. He told the Justice Department spokesman, told The Post, that Rosenstein yes. had convened a working group to look at the issues raised by the report Can this be investigated from inside the department or do you need someone outside the department looking in?
2: Well, it's already been investigated. That's the purpose of the Inspector General report. Uh, The issue is that only the Department of Justice can meet at the appropriate discipline. Uh, The IG's office has already detailed the egregious abuses. Now it's time for the Justice Department to take appropriate disciplinary action. And given the gravity of these offenses, It would be shocking to me if the appropriate uh, discipline wasn't removal. These are high-level officials who have significant positions of trust, who are there to enforce our nation's laws, and are victimizing women. This is just
1: unacceptable. So the IG's office said it published summaries of 19 substantiated allegations of sexual harassment and misconduct from 2012 through 2016. So they're saying that's a small number, but it's the handling of the allegations that the IG found troubling. So expand upon that a little.
2: Sure. Well, if you have a system where people who come forward with meritorious cases— find that the perpetrators suffer no consequences. It sets a tone where other individuals will not risk their careers, will not stick their necks out because they know that doing so will be futile. And if you have a a system where meritorious cases like these just get swept under the carpet, you will create an environment where people don't report. So while Rosenstein said he's hardened by the small number of uh, substantiated cases, that's really not the appropriate way to look at it. It's just like saying that there were, no, there were no complaints actually brought against Harvey Weinstein. If you have a system, an HR system that is ineffective, that protects harassers, you're going to have people who don't report. And we don't know what the actual number or the actual incidence of sexual harassment is at Department of Justice because we have a system in place that doesn't punish perpetrators.
1: Well, also, this was before the Weinstein allegations. Those allegations have encouraged women to come forward. So there might be more allegations than were reported in the inspector general's report.
2: Oh, absolutely right. We are at a moment where people are coming forward in record numbers because the presumption now is that victims are telling the truth and that perpetrators are typically recidivist serial harassers, and more women are coming forward. But the problem is when you have something like Department of Justice, which is a large bureaucracy, and people go into uh, this believing that filing a claim would be career Uh, derailing, they're not going to do it when they see that the harassers suffer no ramifications. So that's why it is crucial that the Department of Justice act decisively now if they want other people to come forward. And they have to be a model employer and not allow this kind of very egregious... I mean, this this is horrible conduct. And the fact that no one suffered any consequences is really shocking.
1: And Deborah, speaking about the lawyers that were seen as... um sexual harassers. Is there additional, are there additional things that need to be done, for example, reporting that to the Office of Professional Responsibility? To Yes, a,
2: yes. Are, that's an excellent point. And also the Inspector General's report no, noted that some of this may be criminal offenses. There could be, you know, the assaults are criminal offenses. So certainly, to the extent that these people are lawyers, the Office of Professional Responsibility within DOJ should have a role and taking appropriate action, assuming that the individuals remain employed at Department of Justice, and also that these cases should be referred for criminal uh, prosecution. I mean, what, what has been uh, confirmed or substantiated by the IG is, is assault in a number of these cases. Thank,
1: thank you so much, Deborah. That's Deborah Katz of Katz, Marshall, and Banks. The Trump administration is about rolling back regulations. Remember when President Trump issued the two old rules for one new rule executive order in February? Well, some states are not following suit. New York's top financial watchdog has proposed regulations that would require sellers of life insurance and annuities to act in the best interest of clients, joining states such as Nevada that have raised standards even as the U.S. government delays its fiduciary rule. Joining me is Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell Law. School. Bob, the Trump administration has delayed implementation of parts of the Department of Labor's fiduciary rule that was created during President Barack Obama's presidency. Tell us about that rule and where it stands now.
3: Sure. Yeah. So, so the idea here is that there are certain products that are sold in the financial markets uh, that are thought to be you know, so sensitive and so important to the buyers. And at the same time, the transactions in those instruments are thought to be so uh, vulnerability-raising or vulnerability-causing uh, to buyers that some sort of special obligation should be imposed upon the seller to make a point of ensuring that whatever uh, product is sold to a given client is indeed in the best interest of the client, right? Uh, and we call that the fiduciary rule. It is uh, the, the word fiduciary, of course, comes from the Latin fide for faith, uh, as in good faith or confidence. Uh, the idea is that, again, we want those who buy these products to be able to trust the seller is kind of more like a close friend in selling it to them than like an arm's length uh, competitive uh, seller uh, in a market where anything goes. Now that rule uh, was developed um, uh, in the late, uh, in the very sort of last months, you might say, of the Obama administration. It was to go into effect. Uh, shortly after Mr. Trump took office, but his administration immediately delayed uh, implementation uh, of the rule. And ever since then, it's been sort of in abeyance. It's been in a state of limbo. um, And that's one reason I think the state of New York has decided to move forward with its own version of the rule.
1: How similar is New York's version to the federal version?
3: Uh, it seems to be essentially identical um the The, the, the real key point here in both cases is that you're a, you're essentially imposing an obligation or a standard on a seller that's actually quite familiar to our law. It's quite often imposed in the case of say a trustee uh with re- in in regard to or in relation to the beneficiaries of the trust. It's, uh, it's commonly uh, placed uh, sort of by operation of law, uh, the managers and the board members of corporations when the interests of the shareholders are at stake. So essentially what this rule does, both at the federal level and here at the New York state level, is to sort of import into the matter of uh, life insurance sales and annuity sales this very familiar standard that's been with us for centuries uh, in these other contexts that are where, where trust is thought to be especially important.
1: The rule is expected to add to compliance costs for firms. And Life Insurance Council of New York, and industry group, said that any implemented regulation should be uniform across the country so companies don't face different standards in different states. Is that a real concern to you?
3: It's, it's actually a ridiculous claim um, for, for two reasons, right? First of all, the compliance cost claim is ridiculous because, of course, any time you impose any regulation, there's a compliance cost by definition, right? We make murder very costly by prohibiting it, right? We make fraud very costly by prohibiting it. A compliant, to say that there's a compliance cost is just to say that it, you know a regulation is a regulation, that it actually says it's no longer the case that anything goes. As far as the uniformity matter goes, that's particularly comical uh, because we have a statute, a federal statute in place called the mccarran Ferguson Act, that actually reserves the regulation of insurance companies to the states. That's to say, we have abjured uh, federal regulation of the insurance industry ever since the mid-1940s. If the industry is actually interested in uniformity, it should be calling for a national system or a federal system of insurance regulation instead of opposing that, which they have uh, routinely done over the last several decades.
1: Bob, how important is this rule for consumers?
3: It's, I think, very important for consumers because the problem is that life insurance is, like many things, like a bank account, something that pretty much every ordinary middle class or you know non, actually pretty much every ordinary American needs or, 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 or wants. And yet the terms of insurance contracts can be quite complicated and quite difficult for ordinary people to make sense of. Uh, and for that reason, it's particularly important that we hold the sellers of that product uh, to a higher standard of behavior, a higher standard of trustworthiness then perhaps, say, the sellers of used cars.
1: Now, the proposed rules are subject to a 60-day comment period before they're officially Mm -hmm. issued. Is there anything that seems to stand in their way?
3: I don't think there is. I mean the comment period is typically just uh, it's meant to enable those who are thinking of putting a rule in place uh to take account of the various arguments that might be raised for it or against it essentially to make sure that they don't overlook any important considerations. In one sense it's a formality, right? It's you you basically have to observe that particular uh, waiting period. On the other hand it's substantive in the sense that, you know, if people actually make sensible Comments or recommendations or raised legitimate concerns, it gives the regulators a chance to sort of reformulate the rule or to uh, put in place sort of special safeguards for the implementation of the rule or whatever. New York is simply uh, going through that standard process. It's gone through, you know, that process has gone through in connection with every regulation. I don't think there's any specific holdup that's foreseen or, or expected here.
1: And as far as the fiduciary rule that the Labor Department has, or is, is, uh, is uh, watching over, is there any likelihood that that will be put into effect?
3: Oh, it's hard to tell. I mean, the the way this administration seems to be operating thus far is just to put things uh, sort of on hold or on the back burner with no indication at all as to whether or when uh, the thing might be brought back to the front burner. So it's hard to tell what might happen. Maybe if Mr. Trump notices that his poll numbers are declining among laboring Americans, he'll suddenly play the populist game again, as he did during the election season, uh, and, and say, "Okay, let's put that thing to place. Uh, If it looks as though he's not suffering any consequences from leaving it in advance and thereby satisfying uh, his real constituents, uh, the industries that would be regulated, uh, then I can imagine that thing sitting there on hold uh, indefinitely.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast I'm June Grosso.
0: This is Bloomberg.